Chapter 16 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 16 In the Wilderness. Norma went down to dinner resolved to present a scornful front to public opinion. She found the effort taxed her strength. During the night her courage deserted her. The cold glitter of triumph in her mother's eyes had been intolerable. Her father, generally regarded with contemptuous indifference, had goaded her beyond endurance with his futile upbraiding. Aline had arrived, white-faced and questioning, and had established herself by Jimmy's bedside. Norma shrank from the ordeal of the daily meeting with her, and the explanation that would inevitably come. She dreaded the return of Morland, uncertain of her own intentions. As she tossed about on her pillow, she loathed the idea of the marriage— Innermost sex had spoken for one passionate moment, and his message still vibrated. She knew that time might dull the memory. She knew that her will might one day triumph over such things as sex and sentiment. But she must have a breathing space, a period of struggle, of reflection, above all, of dissociation from present surroundings. If she sold herself, it must be in the accustomed cold atmosphere of brain and heart. Not now when her head burned and flaming swords were piercing her through and through. And last, and chief of all her dreads, was the wounded man now sleeping beneath that roof. Father, mother, Aline, Morland, these, torture though it were, she could still steel her nerves to meet. But him, never. He had done what no other man in the wide world had done. He had awakened the sleeping sacredest inmost of her and he had dealt it a deadly wound. If she could have consumed him and all the memories surrounding him with fire, as she had consumed the garment stained with his blood, she would have done so in these hours of misery. And fierce among the bewildering conflict of emotions that raged through the long night was one that filled her with overwhelming disgust, a horrible, almost grotesque jealousy of the dead girl. In the morning, exhausted, she resolved on immediate flight. In the little village of Penryn, on the Cornish coast, her aunt Janet Hardacre led a remote, Quakerish existence. The reply to a telegram before she left her room assured Norma of a welcome. By eleven o'clock she had left Hedden Court and was speeding westwards, without a word to Jimmy or Aline. Morland returned in the afternoon, and after a whisky and soda to brace his nerves, at once sought Jimmy, who roused himself with an effort to greet his visitor. Uh, "'Getting on famously, I hear,' said Morland, with forced airiness. "'So glad. We'll have you on your feet in a day or two. "'I hope to be able to travel back to London to-morrow.' "'To-morrow?' "'Yes,' said Jimmy, with a curious smile. "'I fear I have outstayed my welcome.' Oh, "'Not a bit of it,' said Morland, seating himself at the foot of the bed. "'We'll put all that right. But you will give one a little time, won't you?' "'You mustn't think you've been altogether left. "'I ran up to town at once to see my solicitors. "'Not my usual people, you know, but some others. "'Devilish smart fellows at this sort of thing. "'They'll see that nothing gets into the beastly papers.' "'I don't see that it matters much,' said Jimmy. "'Why, of course it does. "'I'm not going to let you take the whole blame. "'I couldn't come forward yesterday. "'It was, it was all so sudden. "'The scandal would have rotted my election altogether.' "'But you shall be cleared, at any rate in the eyes of this household. 
I came down with the intention of telling Norma, but she's bolted to Cornwall. Upset, I suppose. However, as soon as she comes back— Let things be as they are, interrupted Jimmy, closing his eyes for a moment wearily, for he had been suffering much bodily pain. When I said I was David Rendell, I meant it. I can go on acting the part. It's pretty easy. Ah, impossible, my dear chap, said Morland, with an air of heartiness. "'You went into the affair with your eyes shut. "'You didn't know it was such a horrible mess.' "'All the more reason for Norma to remain ignorant. "'It was for her sake, as well as yours.' A peculiar tenderness in Jimmy's tone caused Morland, not usually perceptive, to look at him sharply. "'You are very keen upon Norma,' he remarked. Jimmy closed his eyes again, and smiled. He was very weak and tired. The pain of his wound and a certain mental agitation had kept it awake all night, and just before Morland entered he had been dropping off to sleep for the first time. An unconquerable drowsiness induced irresponsibility of speech. "'The desire of the moth for the star,' he murmured. Morland slipped from the bed to his feet, and with his hands in his pockets gazed in astonishment at his friend. An entirely novel state of affairs dawned upon him which required a few moments to bring into focus. The ghastly tragedy for which he was responsible, presenting itself luridly at every instant of the night and day, had hidden from his reminiscent vision Norma's rush down the slope, and her scared tending of the unconscious man. Jimmy's words brought back the scene with unpleasant vividness, and provided the interpretation. When he saw this clearly, he was the most amazed man in the Three Kingdoms, that Jimmy should have conceived and nourished a silly, romantic passion for Norma, although he had never interested himself sufficiently in Jimmy's private affairs to suspect it, was humorously comprehensible. Ludicrously incomprehensible, however, was a reciprocation of the sentiment on the part of Norma. In spite of remorse, in spite of anxiety, in spite of the struggle between cowardice and manhood, his uppermost sensation at that moment was one of lacerated vanity— he had been hoodwinked, befooled, deceived. His own familiar friend had betrayed him. The woman he was about to honour with his name had set him at naught. He tingled with anger and sense of wrong. The sick man opened his eyes drowsily, and seeing Morland's gaze full upon him, started into wakefulness. He motioned him to come nearer. "'If you marry Norma,' he began. "'If I marry her?' cried Morland. "'Of course I'm going to marry her.' I'll see any other man damned before he marries her. She is the only woman in the world I've ever set my mind on, and no matter what happens, I'm going to marry her. There are no damned ifs about it. Yes, there are, Jimmy retorted weakly. I was going to preach, but I'm too tired. You'll have to be especially good to her, to make up. For what? For the wrong done to the other. Morland was silent. He went up to the window and stared out across the lawns and tugged at his moustache. The reproach stung him, and he felt that Jimmy was ungenerous. After all, he'd only done what thousands of other men had done with impunity. The consequences had been enough to drive him mad, but there had been the hideous accident of a temperament for which he had not been responsible. "'You surely don't believe all that mad fool said yesterday?' he muttered, without turning round. "'The promise of marriage? Ah, it's a crazy invention!' "'There never was any question of marriage. "'I told you so months ago. "'I did everything in my power.' "'I'm glad,' said Jimmy. "'Morland made no reply. 
but continued to stare out of the window and meditate upon the many injuries that fate had done him. He reined himself before the bar of his wounded vanity. He had broken the moral law and deserved a certain penalty. The magnanimous verdict received the applause of an admiring self. He was willing to undergo an adequate punishment, the imposition of a fine and the hard labour of setting devious things straight. But the alternative sentence to which he saw himself condemned, on the one hand the ruin of his political career, his social position, and his marriage with Norma, to all of which he clung with a newly found passion, and on the other, ignoble shelter behind an innocent man who had done him a great wrong, he rebelled against with all his average sensual Britain's sense of justice. It was grossly unfair. If there had been a spiritual times, he would have written to it. The opening of the door caused him to turn round with a start. It was Aline, anxious and pale, from an all-night sitting by Jimmy's bedside, but holding her slim body erect, and wearing the uncompromising air of a mother who has found her child evilly entreated at the hands of strangers. She glanced at the bed, and at Morland. Then she put her finger to her lip, and pointed at Jimmy, who lay fast asleep. Morland nodded, and went on tiptoe out of the room. Aline looked round, and being a sensitive young person, shivered. She threw open the window wide, as if to rid the place of his influence. Jimmy stirred slightly. She bent down and kissed his hair. During the dark and troubled time that followed, Morland fell away from Jimmy like the bosom friend of a medieval artist stricken with the black death. At first common decency impelled him to send the tainted one affectionate messages, invitations to trust him a while longer, and enlarged, with the crudity of his mental habit, on the noble aspects of Jimmy's sacrifice. But after Jimmy left the Hardacre's house, which happened as soon as he could bear the journey, Morland shrank from meeting him face to face, and, when public exposure came, the messages and the invitations and the protestations ceased, and Jimmy was left in loneliness upon a pinnacle of infamy. Morland, in the futile hope of the weak-willed man that he could, by some astonishing chance, sail a middle course, did indeed give himself peculiar pains to keep the story out of the newspapers, and his ill-success was due to other causes than his own lack of effort. It was a tale too picturesque to be wasted in these days of sensation hunger. The fact of the denouement of the tragedy having taken place in the presence of royalty lent it a theatrical glamour. A sardonic press filled an Athenian public with what it lusted after. Indeed, who shall say with authority that the actual dramas re-enacted before our courts and reported in our newspapers have not their value in splashing with sudden colour the drab lives of thousands? May it not be better for the dull soul to be occasionally arrested by the contemplation of furious passions than to feed contentedly like a pig beside the slaughtered body of its fellow? Be that as it may, the press paid no heed to Morland or the smart fellows of solicitors whom he employed. It published as many details as it could discover or invent. For the tragical business did not end with the scene on the Hardacre's lawn. There was an inquest on the dead girl. There was the trial of Daniel Stone for attempted murder. The full glare of publicity shed itself upon the sordid history. In the one case, the jury gave a verdict of suicide during temporary insanity. In the other, the prisoner was found to be insane and was sent to an asylum. 
These were matters of no great public interest, but letters to the dead girl and a disguised handwriting were discovered, and Stone gave his crazy evidence, and a story of heartless seduction under solemn promise of marriage and of abandonment with cynical offer of money was established, and the fashionable portrait painter, who was supposed to be the hero of the tale, awoke one morning and found himself infamous. The thing, instead of remaining a mere police-court commonplace, became a society scandal. Exaggeration was inevitable, not only of facts, but of the reprobation of virtuous community pronounces on the specially pillared wrongdoer. The scapegoat in its essential significance is by no means a thing of legendary history. It exists still, and owes its existence to an ineradicable instinct in human nature. The reprobation aforesaid is due not entirely to hypocrisy, as the social satirist would have it, but in a great measure to an unreasoning impulse towards expiation of offences by horrified condemnation of some notorious other. Thus it came to pass that upon Jimmy's head were put all the iniquities of the people, and all their transgressions in all their sins, and he was led away into the social wilderness. After that the world forgot him. He had been obscure enough before he burst for a day into the blaze of royal patronage, but now blackest darkness swallowed him up. Only a lean remained by his side. Morland wrote to Jimmy once after the exposure. As he had been the cause, said he, of the probable ruin of Jimmy's professional prospects, it was only right that he should endeavour to make some compensation. It was, besides, a privilege of their lifelong friendship. He enclosed a cheque for two thousand pounds. Jimmy returned it. "'My dear Borland,' he wrote in answer, "'loyalty can only be repaid by loyalty, love by love. "'If I accepted money, it would dishonour both yourself and me. "'It's true that I took upon me a greater burden than I was aware of. "'The world, if it knew the facts, would, as you say, call me a quixotic fool. "'But if I took your money, it would have the right to call me a mercenary knave. "'I've always suffered fools gladly, myself the greatest.' I can go on doing so. Meanwhile, you can make full compensation in the only way possible. Devote your life and energies to the happiness of the woman you are about to marry. This was a stern letter for Jimmy to write. After he had posted it, he reproached himself for not having put in a kind word. End of chapter 16